0: This is Becky Gannon, and I'm Mad About Miniatures. I am so honored today to have Bill Robertson, the legendary miniaturist, on the podcast. Bill got started in miniatures when he stopped to buy his mom a gift at a miniature show. Little did he know that this would embark him on a lifelong career that would take him all over the world. Let's go talk to Bill. Hello, Bill. I'm so glad to have you here today.
1: Hi. Right, well- I'm glad to be on. It's great to talk to you.
0: I'm really excited. Your name has just pops up everywhere in the miniature community in so many different ways. Lighting, museum design, tools, woodworking. So you have a wide breadth of skills in the miniature world.
1: Yes, I guess I do. Also, the fact that I've been doing this forever. I mean, I've been in business solely making miniatures and related things for 44 years.
0: That's pretty incredible when you think about it. I think we talked about this. When you're in high school and you talk to the job counselor, they never say, hey, would you like to make fine miniatures?
1: You know, they, they don't give you that option. And it, had they did, I probably would have thought they were lying, that there was a job like mine. And it's taken me all over the world. I've gotten to see amazing things. I've gotten to meet incredible people. Who knew? And it's all because of miniatures.
0: Tell us how you got interested and got started in miniatures.
1: I think probably the best way to put this is I grew up in the 60s, uh, late 50s, 60s. And I kind of refer to it as a craft culture then. It was normal for kids to build their own toys. As I recall, there was eight hobby shops within 20 minutes of our house growing up. Right. For a little kid to ride his bike over to the slot car track and race little slot cars, and when you wreck them, you bring them home and fix them, and played with model trains and plastic models and balsa wood airplanes. I did all that, and in a sense, I'm still doing it. I just play with neat little models and things, except for the last 40-odd years, they've been decorative arts-related miniatures instead of things with
0: wheels. So you were always really attracted to making things and finding out how they work and that type of thing.
1: Oh, yeah. When I was about nine, my parents moved into a new house, and they gave me a little corner of the basement and put the old kitchen table there, and that was my play table. By the time I was in high school, that corner had expanded to the entire basement was my shop. And it was a pretty large basement, a couple of rooms. I was the kid that would drag home a broken stereo or lawnmower out of someone's trash on the way home from school, and I'd take it apart. And a lot of that stuff I actually made work again. But I'd study how things went together and how you built things. And you know, I quickly learned that if I wanted something, I could either buy it or I could build it. And it was more fun and easier to build it.
0: That's really incredible. And what a good lesson. I think maybe kids today don't build as many things. My kids did, but it seems to be getting further and further away. And there's something about being able to do it yourself that really gives you confidence.
1: Yes, it does. And there's a big difference. I think a lot of kids today put things together, you know, whether it be downloading software for a 3D printer or mapping together some Legos where, you know, when I was a kid, we'd take a piece of raw material, a board, a chunk of metal and form it into the shape and the object we wanted to. I'll tell you a a cute story. I was in the Deutsches Museum in Germany years ago, and they had this toy called a Miwerka, long German name for it. It was sort of like in the class of an erector set, but it really had no parts. The press that took scrap metal and made it into the parts of an erector set, and it had like twenty-some different attachments to poke holes, to bend, to shape, to cut, all from, as they put it, scrap metal that can be found scattered around because you know, basically the country was in ruins. This toy came out right after World War II. And mm-hmm. it was this fancy little press and a little box full of accessories and dies and everything. And it cost about twenty dollars US at the time. And I asked my mother. By the way, I own one of these. It took me three years to hunt one down. They're very rare because they were 20 bucks. I asked my mom, I said, how come you didn't get me one of those instead of an erector set? And she said, because it was 20 bucks. That was the family (laughs) budget for each kid for Christmas or all of us. I don't know. But it just shows the idea of truly learning to make and create from raw materials. And somehow that's what I did.
0: So, the first dollhouse you made was actually for your mother. Yeah. And you didn't want to.
1: You know, I was the kind of kid, teenager, whatever, 20 year old, that your parents kind of, you know, don't necessarily want to introduce at a family (laughs) gathering or whatever. You know, it was the late 70s or the, yeah, late 70s. I had long hair. It was, the fall of 76, I was unemployed and not in school. Mm-hmm. And the backyard was filled with cars because I liked to play with cars, which also meant buy wrecks and take them apart and race a little bit and buy another car and, you know, take the engine out of that and leave the rest of it in the backyard and so on. My mother wanted a dollhouse for her grandchildren. And I didn't want to hear anything about this. And my father explained to me that I will be building my mother a dollhouse since I have the skills and the workshop in his basement. And I'm going to do this or I can get all my junk out of his house, more or less. So I was motivated and I negotiated that I would start this after the holidays. Monday, January 3rd of 1977, it's like, okay, I'm going to build this dollhouse for mom. You know, Meanwhile, she had drawn the plans up. Her father had been a carpenter, a rough carpenter. She knew something about how to conceive and build something. So she had it all drawn up. And dad had actually bought her the plywood. I said, yeah, we've got to use good plywood. I've always used good materials for anything. He had the materials. And that morning, and a school friend came by, I don't know, 11 o'clock-ish. He wanted to go down to Barnaby's, which was a bar that we were known to hang out at, which pretty much meant we weren't going to get anything done the rest of the day because we're going to sit there and drink pitchers of beer. My mother, I still remember her eyes. They kind of looked like those of a devil when Steve locked in. And I told Steve, I gotta do this. I'll be down in an hour. Because the deal with my mother was she would do the busy work. Oh. She always was very crafty, always liked hobbies and crafts and paint by number and you know, knitting rugs or you know, all that stuff. So as long as she was happy dad was happy and my stuff could stay. So I took a board of cherry that I happened to have laying there and sliced it up into individual little random width boards and showed her how to glue them on and said, you glue these floors on. And if you get done, just call me. I'll be down at Barnaby's. You know, um, this is the days when you'd call the bar looking for, you know, kids, whatever. But anyway, I came home, uh, you know, sometime the next morning, And my mother's sitting there in her bathrobe in the living room, gluing in the last pieces, very excited. And I'm like, oh boy, not what I expected. So I drilled a few thousand holes in these because, well, these imaginary dolls have to have a random wood floors. Anyway, I kept coming up with more detail to think that she would run out of patience and this whole project would go away and I wouldn't have to do it anymore. Ah, But it didn't take till nearly... 40 years later, I was preparing for one of the creative conferences I spoke at. And one of the questions was, where did you get your patience? And I told my mother, I said, you know, where? And she said, well, of course, you got your patience from me. You thought you were going to wear me down with that extra detail? No, I love that stuff. <laughs> you know. So my my little plot didn't work so well. It didn't. No, but I got the house done. And at that point, I needed a vacation. My mother wanted to have a party to show off the house. Anyway, my dad told me that my commitment to this project was finished at the end of the party. And within days, I went down to Florida, and I had finished a frame-up rebuild of a 68 Camaro hot rod, and it was painted bright red and yellow, and it was a very nice car. So, And I had just turned 21. So at this point, I'm a 21-year-old with a hot car Having you know finished off a commitment he didn't want to do, and I go down to Florida. And the first night down in Florida, I go with a family friend to highlight the gambling thing, and we hit the trifecta. What? On a bet, we hit the trifecta, which is betting on the winners of the last three games. <laughs> A $6 bet paid $3,600.
0: Now, was this just pure luck? Did you know what you were doing?
1: I'd never been to Highline. I knew nothing about it. have never been since. Okay. I know nothing about this sort of thing. I was with an old family friend that I'd known since I was born. And he had a broken arm and was out of work and said he knew I had some money because I was early days of what was going to be a 10-day vacation. Anyway, so now I'm a 21-year-old with a hot car and a lot of money. So we'll fast forward five weeks of having fun and partying. And I was getting bored and I had done as many beach parties as you could imagine and this and that. And I am driving along and I see a sign says miniature show and sale. And I thought, hmm, I should bring mom a little gift from my trip to Florida whenever I get around to getting back. I was only to be gone 10 days. This is weeks later. And she really hates seashells and stuff. So I thought, I'll maybe get her something for her dollhouse. So I made a U-turn. And walked into the Mini and Mini show in Lake Buena Vista in the spring of seventy-seven. And the first dealer I walked up to was Paige Thornton, who sold Dennis Hillman and John Hodgson's work, which were the two best English miniature makers in the world at the time—miniature furniture makers. And I was stunned. I'm like, "Wow, this is amazing!" And the people were just going crazy over this stuff. And I thought, you know. I can do this.
0: What surprised you the most? The quality, the price, just everything?
1: The quality, the price, and really important that people were actively buying it. There were women standing there with handfuls of $100 bills (laughs) buying these things. Wow. I had been to fine scale model train shows where, and I remember years before I was at a train show and a guy had had this amazing locomotive that he had built and he had sold it to a collector. And he had spent six months on it. And he had sold it for $1,000. And I thought, well, that's really neat. But $1,000 for six months worth of work, that doesn't add up.
0: Right. Can't live on that.
1: No. And I always knew somehow somebody had to make money in hobbies. You know, when you went to the hobby shop, somebody owns the hobby shop. Somebody with the hobby shop. There are people that can make a living in the hobby business in some way or another of any hobby. That was one of the things I saw there was like, Oh, my, this is a very happening scene. And this is really cool. And the stuff's really cool. And it doesn't take up a lot of space. And I can build that.
0: What was the reaction? I mean, at that point, the women were probably pretty well dressed. There couldn't have been any other young 20 year olds with long hair and I don't know, wearing cut off denim or whatever you were wearing.
1: good cutoffs and sandals. It was like walking into a DAR convention, because in the late 70s, when the older generation of women went out, they dressed for that. So there were women in white gloves and little hats and very semi-formally dressed. And this was quite a shock. And many years later, I talked to a couple people and they remembered seeing me come into that show. Yeah, I, I was noticed.
0: <laughs> right. So once you went to the show, then what happened?
1: I actually got out, got in my car, and 21 hours later, I was back home in D.C. I had to tell my mother about this. Literally, I, I think I took a nap for a few hours in the Carolinas somewhere, but I basically drove straight home. You know, you have to remember, I was only supposed to be gone for about 10 days, so I've had no communication with anybody. So when you show back up in town, everybody wants to hear about the adventures and the stories and, you know, how were the girls, what were the parties like, and all this. And I kept talking about the miniatures. And finally, a friend of mine, after about two weeks of this, he said, I'm sick of hearing about this. He said, if you say you can do that, do it. So I kind of thought, I better do that. And I remember I went home. And at the time, I had a General Motors Chevy Power Glide transmission sitting on my workbench, and took that off, threw it on the floor, put down a clean piece of plywood. In the meantime, my mother had gotten a piece of junk mail from Southern Living Magazine that had a little picture of a desk on it and I'm going to make that desk. I just looked at the picture, went, desk is about this big, scaled it out, did a drawing the way I had learned to make drawings in junior high school, and built that
0: desk. And how long did that take? A couple
1: weeks, maybe. Because by June, there was a miniature show in our area at Gaithersburg. And this time, I cleaned up a little bit and uh, went with my mother, which, you know, Twenty-one year old going with their mother versus to something's a little unusual, even even then. Right. Naturally, my mother gets to telling everybody how her son made this little desk. <laughs> and I remember Flora Gill Jacobs from the Washington Dolls House and Toy Museum, Paige and Hatch Thornton, and W. Foster Tracy were all set up next to each other. And they were the best three dealers in the shop. With they had the best stuff. My mother is obviously telling them about this. And as the conversation goes, eventually, you know, my mother tells them about the little desk and how it's in the glove box in the car. Bill, you better go out and get it and show it to these people. So I did. Tracy's response was, this is good. This is damn good. Really damn good. How much do you want for these? And I told him, and he likes says, oh, no, at least double that. So we struck a deal, and he was my dealer for a while, and he sold three of them the first week he had them.
0: Wow. So you didn't have any trouble getting someone to sell them. You just got hooked up right away.
1: I got hooked up right away with what was literally the top dealer in the country at the time, who was selling to all the best customers.
0: That's amazing.
1: So within six months, I was selling to the founders of the museum here in Kansas City, the late Sarah Salisbury, who had an amazing collection and many others. They were my earliest customers. And many of them stayed customers for over 30 years.
0: Talented and a little lucky, I would say.
1: Yes, I was at the right spot at the right time. And recognized it.
0: (laughs) You really had that epiphany in Florida, drove home and then did something about it.
1: I did, all in a period of a few. You know, literally a couple months from, you know, being a car guy to basically by June, it's like, "Mm," you know, I built a dollhouse for mom, had my fun. And now it's time to start building miniatures.
0: Now, I sort of remember that you told me that to this day, you carry a tiny little sample of your work to show people, you know, when you're at museums and in different places like that. Is that right?
1: Well, not all the time. When I'm going on a trip to, let's say, visit a museum to study an object, I have a little gentleman's tool chest that I made for me for my 20th anniversary of doing miniatures. And it probably took a 1,000 hours to make this piece. Wow. And it's one of the best pieces I've ever made. It's a a one-of-a-kind, and I own it. It has a little carrying case, and it's probably logged 100,000 miles. When I go into a museum to meet with someone, I will pull that out of my pocket. It's very, very small. And open that up and show them. Usually, I get far greater cooperation than I had ever planned. I've had the Metropolitan Museum let me examine pieces and take them apart. I've had other museums pull things off display and let me see them in the lab under bright lights and great conditions. I've gotten into the back rooms of more museums around the world than I can think of, and private collections and all sorts of things.
0: It's interesting because when, in one of my previous interviews, they talked about the little gold microscope you made and how the Metropolitan Museum let you take it apart And I think when we were first talking, I said, how on earth did you talk them into that? And this is how, right? This is sort of what you do.
1: I showed the assistant director of the museum, as I recall, the piece. And he's like, whoa. And he tells his assistant, whatever this gentleman wants, he can have. And it was very funny because someone else had made the initial appointment for me at a very high level at the Met that knew, knew someone that I could get to the top level very quickly. And I know you only have a few minutes for this. So, you know, you pull out the goodie and get, this is what we're talking about when I talk about miniatures. And it worked. But the funny part was the the microscope was in the Reitman Gallery at the time. They turned off the alarms and we walked. It was one of the big period rooms and sitting on the table. And they said, you know, we, we hate to ask this, but can you take your shoes off? Because we're going to walk on a rug that was from the Louvre. Oh, my. So it's like, of course. As I'm standing there, Studying the microscope, my feet are just digging into this rug, my toes, thinking, oh, if I can only crawl out of bed each day and land on a rug like this. (laughs) But I'm looking at it, and you've seen pictures of it. The eyepiece is this strange little finial, and I asked, can I unscrew the eyepiece? And she said, oh, okay. So I unscrewed that and photographed it. And I could see under it, there were marks left by the craftsman as to how many they made. I think there were three marks on it, three little dots. And then I pointed out that, you know, the piece under it was part of the lens shield. I said, can I unscrew that? Okay. And the social security did not know it came apart that way. Anyway, before I go look at something, I study everything I know about it. And I think I had read hundreds and hundreds of pages about 18th century microscopes, how they're built, that this works off the cuff principle and the, the design. So I knew what the inside looked like before I ever saw it. So I knew what unscrewed, where, how, and everything, and uh, was able to do that and pointed out all kinds of details that the person I was with who had examined it was unaware of. Little marks left by the craftsman, because the original microscope would have been made in a lot of castings. They would have been finished and fitted and then taken apart for gilding. Well, they marked them. Every piece on it was marked. And they made at least three of them because there's three little tick marks on each part. So that would be number three. I think number two I've since discovered is in a private collection in Italy. I don't know where the other one is.
0: So they really learned something from you taking it apart. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's amazing. So you've told me that you've been to over maybe a thousand museums, but that it sort of all started with the Smithsonian and being dropped there off on Saturdays. Can you tell my listeners a little about that?
1: I was born in Ohio, and when I was six years old, my parents decided that Ohio was no place to raise children because there was a big, broad world out there, and we weren't going to see it there. <laughs> we moved to Washington, D.C. in 1962.
0: I just have to point out that I was born in D.C., but I did indeed raise my kids in Ohio. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I had to, had to put that in there. Well, I can
1: understand this. I mean, <laughs> D.C. was a wild place, you know, and I basically was there from 62 to 88, which was some pretty crazy times. Anyway, when I was a little kid, my parents, like when I was around 12, they would, on a Saturday afternoon, my brother and sister were both older and they'd be off doing things. And I'm there and they like, yeah, they don't quite want to take me to whatever they're doing their errands, whatever. They don't quite want to leave me alone in the house. So sometimes they would take me down to the Smithsonian because they knew the whole day would go by and I wouldn't even know it. And the deal was, I'd pick what building I wanted to go to. They'd drop me off, give me lunch money, and I'd just spend the whole day in the building and meet them out front at closing time. I had a blast. I would run around and look at all my favorite exhibits. I remember there was this one model of an aircraft carrier that had a dead fly laying on the deck and I'd check it every time to make see if the, they had cleaned it, if that fly was still there oh and it must have been there for years. I remember even as an adult, it was still there. I learned about the objects. I read all the little cards next to the objects. I learned what it meant that someone donated this or how they got it. I later learned that the people that wrote those cards worked upstairs and you could take the elevator to their offices and talk to them and they knew a lot more than they wrote. By the time I was my mid-teens, I'm hanging out in the offices of the Smithsonian, befriending some of the curators and seeing the behind the scenes.
0: And how did they react to that? Were they pretty warm and welcoming? Were they surprised at first? They
1: were very warm and welcoming. Curators at that time knew a lot about and loved the objects. Mm -hmm. It was that old generation of curators. Now you have a lot of people that go off to school they don't know what they want to be. So they take museum studies and they learn about, you know, wearing white gloves and having meetings. And the old curators, they were in love with the items. And the museums back in the earlier days were kind of the domain of trust fund kids. You know, read Thomas Hoving's book. One of the great ones is the, I think, The King of the Confessors, which is about his search as a young curator at the Smithsonian buying a ivory cross in the early 60s which was the most expensive decorative arts piece sold in the world at the time and his years of searching for information on this prior to its purchase somebody who's in school learning about the stuff and on their summer vacations they can afford to go to Italy and go to here and go to there and search so the curators of that time really liked A young kid would tell me things to read, tell me things to look, tell me where to find more information, which I would do, and come back with more questions. That's the way that works.
0: Right. And this started your lifelong love of museums, right?
1: It did. And as I say, I've been to literally way over a thousand museums.
0: I'd love to ask you your favorite, but you may not have a favorite. Is there a particular adventure or particular one you want to share with us?
1: Oh, that's so hard.
0: What's an unknown museum that we might not have heard of that you've gone to?
1: Oh, there, again, there's so many of those. I, I actually think on my Instagram, I'm going to start doing Mondays at the Museum.
0: That'd be perfect.
1: I'll tell you a story, that I and I might write about it soon. I was at the Chateau Venderve in the 90s, and that house, that chateau has been in the family, if I recall, has been passed down father to son for nine generations, which is very unusual to have such a direct father to son thing. Anyway, there is a miniature museum there, and it's in the orgery. I was given a tour of it, and the amazing thing was, here's 10,000 plus objects, and I spotted this little pair of Quattro Gold repoussé etuis, the little traveling cases. And I always loved little traveling cases. If these were 18th century in Quattro Gold. I would love to see those. And she opened up the case and got them out and handed them to me. And I have a picture of them in my hand. And I was absolutely blown away that thousands and thousands of objects, they were my favorite. And she explained she got them at Cougel's in Paris, which is a very, very famous antique dealer that has some of the best objects in the world. I've been in there a number of times, and there was this lovely amillary sphere I liked. It was $5.2 million. They have very nice things. She admitted of all the things in her collection. Those were among her very favorite. I've always had an eye to walk in, here's rooms full of things. And I go, that, that's what I want to see. And it's often one of the best pieces. It just, they just jump out at me.
0: Well, you probably need that eye to make the best pieces. You know, there's something there that tells you what's really extraordinary.
1: You do. My mother joked, she referred to it as glass caseitis. She said, you know, you go to an antique fair or any shop and, Whatever's in the glass case, that's what Bill's going to look at. <laughs> Put it under glass with lights on it. And I'm drawn to it like I'm off the a light.
0: You walk in and there's just in sixth sense that tells you what the most expensive purse or piece of jewelry is. Oh yeah.
1: The co founder of the miniature museum here in Kansas City, Barbara Marshall, and I were very, very close, very good friends. And we went shopping a lot together. And we could literally walk up to a table. There'd be a hundred things on it. We'd both just take a quick glance, go that one. And we'd both pick the same one.
0: Really? Your taste was that similar, and you both had that same experience and knowledge.
1: We'd go shopping together. We'd go all over. And we'd see literally millions of objects. I remember once we were at the flea markets in Paris, and there was a half doll. There was a case filled with half dolls. And there was this one half doll. And I'm like, whoa, that's neat. I need to show the book. Number one, I'm not a doll person. Number two, I really don't like dolls. <laughs> anyway, Barbara collected them. I said, Barbara, the one in the back row, like second from the left. What, what do you think of that? She's like, oh my, that's not in any of the books. Why did I know that that particular half doll, we asked the man, if he'd get it out, he's like, "Oh no, you don't want to see that one." He's seeing two American tourists. He's like, "No, I said, no, we do want to see that one." He's like, "No, the other ones are so much easier to get out. You want to see it? No, we don't want to see those." I'm not going to sit there and say Yes, this lady has hundreds of these things. Right. We eventually got that out. She looked at it. It was in phenomenal shape. She, we both checked it over for any chips or cracks or whatever, and it was purchased. It was very expensive. Right. But anyway, very funny. It's like, yeah, we just always had great taste.
0: Wow. So you were just born with that eye. Do you think you got that from your mom or dad? Or did they both claim you got it from them?
1: Oh, no, definitely would have come from my mom.
0: Okay, that's what I thought.
1: Dad was a uh, a government bureaucrat, high level bureaucrat. I remember in the 70s, he always played with computers. And he came home with these big wide printouts dot matrix and he says, look at these computers. They can do calligraphy. And I'm like, that's not calligraphy. That looks like a stairway. <laughs> I said, those aren't smooth curves. Those are, you know, no. And and I don't think he could see the difference.
0: That's actually really funny because I had almost an identical story. My dad worked for control data. I remember, probably it was in the 70s, we went to one of those p- family picnics. Mm-hmm. And as a special treat for the kids, you could go up to the computer and get a Snoopy printout. Mm-hmm. Now, the computer was Huge. about as big as a kitchen, honestly. And the printout I got wasn't even like a coloring page, certainly wasn't shaded in. It was the outline of a Snoopy in Exit. Right. That's what that enormous computer could do.
1: I remember a friend had the, a tear computer, which is the same thing that Bill Gates saw and envisioned the future. It was the first computer he played with and wrote code for. And it had a row of blinking lights across the top. And I remember my friend showing me, and I kept saying, what's it do? What's it do? I didn't get it. You know, <laughs> Had I got it, I could have been the other Bill. But I didn't get it.
0: Different things obviously speak to different people. I saw in your bio that you actually ended up being a consultant to the Smithsonian.
1: Just like I had said, they would tell me things to look at and ask me questions, and I'd go in search of the answers, and in time, in certain areas, I knew more than they did. And I've always liked tools, and I got very interested in early measuring tools used in a workshop, precision measuring tools, which in America starts around 1850 which is really one of the keys to the Industrial Revolution. If you're going to make little nuts and bolts, and you're going to make the nuts on one side of the town and the bolts over on the other, they got to fit together.
0: That's a really good point.
1: And unless you have a way to communicate measurement, uh, it doesn't work that way. It's back to like that microscope in the 18th century where you make one part and the next part to fit it. And you better number them because if you take it apart, it's not going back together the same way. This fascinated me, and I started to read about this and study it and collect the tools. I I happen to own a very large collection of precision measuring tools for use in the workshop. I own some of the rarest pieces in the world. Wow. A micrometer, for example, is a very popular thing. It was invented by Jean-Laurent Palmer in 1848. There are four known examples signed by Palmer. I own one of those four. And I'm also currently writing a book on micrometers. But when the Smithsonian wanted information, they'd contact me, and I would work with the curators. The Park Service then contacted them, and they said, oh, no, Bill's the guy, when they were restoring both the Wright Brothers Workshop and Thomas Edison's workshop. So I got hired to be the consultant to deal with all the small tools, like what should be on the bench and how and why. In both those cases, they had me go out and buy all those tools, because in America, typically, the factory owned the big machinery and the individual machinist owned his own tools. So when the guys left after their employment, they took their own tools and went home. Ah. the Workbenches were basically empty. If you go to the Edison lab at West Orange, New Jersey, I'm responsible for filling those workbenches.
0: That sounds like a dream job for someone like you.
1: It was. It was a whole lot of fun.
0: And it had to be really gratifying to go from being a kid, you know, wandering the halls of the Smithsonian to being a consultant. That just has to have some satisfaction there.
1: It is. I, I think one of the things that gave me some great satisfaction was I was at the Conservatoire National Arts and Metiers in Paris, which is a, uh, one of the finest industrial museums, technical museums in the world. And I was in search of some information on a toolmaker named Bergeron, which is one of my favorite, and I'm still in search of information on them, various books and things they printed and so on. I had made an appointment with the appropriate curator, and and he very proudly tells me that he's pulled the file on Bergeron, which was a French company they were the supplier to the tools at the royal workshops going back into the mid 18th century their shop had to be fabulous it was right there off the pont neuf île de la cité you know the little island in the middle of paris right next to the louvre you know it was amazing anyway he proudly tells me that they have a wonderful wonderful documentation on bergeron in english And he pulls it out, and it's things that I had written and sent to my friend Warren Ogden, who was another historian researcher, researcher, who had then sent copies on to the conservatoire. Wow. And and I laughed, and I said, I wrote that. And this other part, I recognized, right, it's by my friend Warren.
0: So you were the the expert they were showing you.
1: (laughs) Yes, I, I was. Yeah, it's been fun, but I've uh, gotten to see so many amazing things. Well, they had Louis the Fifteenth lathe uh, by Merklin, and I got to play with that. Wow! In London, I've gotten to go through James Watt, the inventor of the steam engine. You know, very key, important person. I've gone through his toolbox, handled and touched the things he made and, and used. Lots of very famous engineers I've gotten to play with their stuff.
0: I feel like your life has really exceeded your own expectations.
1: Well, I don't have any expectations.
0: Well, there's that.
1: I'm very open to ideas. I'm very open to a sudden change of plans. And this way, no, we're going to make a U-turn or for, you know, left turn, go here, and do something else.
0: And it's really served you well.
1: It has. It has. When I look back and think of all the things I've seen and done and handled and played with, it's truly amazing.
0: I have a question about measurement. When you're making your miniatures, you know, you must be measuring down to the, well, you tell me, what do you use to measure your your tiny little things?
1: My favorite measuring tool is a pair of dial calipers that measures to a thousandth of an inch. That's three decimal points. Okay. Your hair's probably about three, three and a half thousandths of an inch. Now, I don't necessarily need to work to that level. NASA, they work to a few more decimal points because they like things to be really pretty perfect. And in space, there's not a lot of room for air. For a little tiny room chair, if it's five thousandths of an inch off, it's not going to be the end of the world. I measure everything. I calculate it out. But then as I make it, I use the phrase, the eye is the final judge. You have to make it look right, not always by the numbers. That's where the art of all this comes in.
0: I can see that.
1: Like one example is if you make a miniature of a room and the room has an eight foot ceiling and you make the ceiling eight inches, it is not going to look right. You have to make it nine. It's an optical illusion. If you make it eight, it's going to look like it's short. Oh. Just has to do with the way your eyes perceive and and program it. Sometimes when you make pieces, let's say a famous piece that's been photographed a lot If you make it to the real size it is, it's not going to look like the photograph because the lens of the photograph has distorted it. So sometimes make it to the way it looks in the picture. So people recognize it. So they don't think you did it wrong.
0: That makes sense to me because I do a lot of photography. And it really is amazing how, you know, whatever's in the foreground looks so much bigger. So things do really get distorted in photos all the time. And people don't really realize that.
1: Very much so. It gives us a very odd way of looking at things. But that's the way we're trained to look at stuff. One recent thing, Bruce Goldfarb invited me to see the tiny death rooms.
0: I saw that I'm so jealous. we were talking about, it, and
1: when she did the rooms, one of the reasons she built the rooms instead of using a stack of you know eight by ten black and white photos is the photographer taking pictures would naturally influence the viewer by aiming the camera at the clue or at what the photographer wanted you to see, whereas in the miniature room you see it all, and it's not chosen ahead of time where you put your focus. And I thought that was a fascinating point.
0: It really is. Because otherwise, the clues are sort of found for you.
1: Right. This is a picture of the knife on the floor.
0: And even if you look at the knife, I mean, does the photographer choose to show the things on the right and the left or only the right? I mean, it really makes a lot of choices for you. I hadn't thought of that.
1: Or did the knife get knocked on the floor because... She was cutting an apple with it, you know, the the victim, and the cat knocked it off. It has nothing to do with the scene. Right. It was a fascinating conversation about that. It was just, it was a lot of fun.
0: So one of the questions I wanted to ask, because I know there are certain woods, and I think cherry is one of them that's often used in miniatures to replicate the grains of other woods. But I figure you might know other exotic woods that work.
1: I have always, since day one, kept my eye out for that special piece of wood. I remember one time on a flight home from Europe, I checked my carry-on bag and put a piece of wood in the top of the plane because I knew what was in my carry-on bag and I knew that what I can make out of the grain from that little block of wood, that little, you know, three foot board, was way more valuable than anything else. And I didn't want to lose it under any circumstance. I have lots of wood. And what I, I jokingly say, I'm I'm always looking for the little runt of a tree that grew behind the big tree that didn't get a lot of sunlight because the big tree blocked it and it grew really, really slow, which meant a lot more rings, you know, the little rings when you slice down a tree, and that they're closer together because the tree grew didn't grow as much, and therefore the grain of the wood is tighter. So I'm looking, I am always keep my eye out for these beautiful extra fine grain pieces of wood, and that's what I use. I use cherry and the cherry I have for the most part is it came from a tree that was a large tree in 1727 in Maryland when a survey was done because the tree is on that survey and it was cut around 1942 and sawn into boards and I bought it. It's original growth timber. The boards I have, well, they've been sawn down, but I think the widest one I have left is 22 inches wide. That's a big piece of cherry.
0: Really big.
1: Yeah. And, and the grain is so tight, it, it doesn't even look like cherry. It's so fine.
0: Was it a little tree then?
1: No, it was a big tree, but it probably was many hundreds of years old.
0: Oh. And so you really are looking.
1: Original growth wood, basically. I mean, I have some yew wood that I have a piece that has 400 rings in it.
0: 400? You no, know,
1: it's at least four hundred years old.
0: So do they get tighter as they get older or only certain pieces?
1: Some do and some grow smaller. Like one of the fascinating things that I describe about woods is Lloyd McCaffrey, he did a set of three smaller scale religious buildings from different cultures and different time periods in the same scale. And he did a Massachusetts meeting house, a Japanese temple, and a stave church. And their buildings are on display in the museum, and they're all made of boxwood, which is a very fine-grained wood. But when you look at, let's say, the Japanese bell tower, you see round pieces almost as big of round as your little finger. When you look at the stave church, there's hardly a board in it bigger than a one-by-six. And when you realize that in Japan, being a tropical country, we had these huge cedars that grew hundreds of feet tall, like our redwoods. But in Norway, where the stave church was built, their growing season's like two weeks long, and it takes forever for a tree to grow, and there are no big trees. You know, about the biggest thing you have is a birch tree out in the forest, and they're not that big.
0: Have you been to Iceland? The joke in Iceland is, if you're lost in the forest, stand up. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> because they're bushes. I didn't see any trees.
1: Or well, there are no trees. They don't grow, but yet they're very old. That's the kind of wood I'm looking for is these slow growth woods. You know, I have old pear wood. I like pear woods. Another one I like. Very slow growth. For dark color, if I want black, I use African black wood. And a lot of these things are getting harder and harder to find. Luckily, I do miniatures, so I don't use a whole lot. I jokingly say that, in a sense, I'm an environmentalist because no tree's ever been cut down on my account because I only use about two board feet of wood a year.
0: I did read one story in your wonderful website about some wood that came to you in a diplomatic pouch.
1: Uh yeah, I was looking for a very figured wood in scale, and I noticed the people smoking pipes had the, that beautiful wood. And I thought, what is that wood? And it was briar. It had gorgeous grain, but most briar, when they season it, they drill a hole down the middle of it. That's going to be the bowl of the pipe, and they let it air dry so it doesn't crack. Well, I don't know where I want to cut the piece out, and the hole's right in the middle. That's not what I want. So I wanted briar without a hole. So I remember going downtown DC to some well-known smoke shop at Georgetown and talked to them. Where do I get the finest quality briar without a hole in it? And the guy said, "Well, he knows a guy who knows a guy at the embassy and." There's some great stuff in Turkey and we can get it for you and it'll be expensive. About six weeks later in a diplomatic pouch came over a block of briar that cost me a hundred bucks and it was It's a phenomenal piece of wood. And I remember cutting it. I looked at it and looked at it. I polished all the different sides of it so I could see what the grain was going to look like. And I drew my lines of where I wanted to make my cuts, almost like a diamond cutter would look at a big diamond and decide, where am I going to cut this to get the maximum brilliance? I still have some pieces from that very block left.
0: Well, how big was the block?
1: Oh, probably six, seven inches by three inches, by four inches, something like that.
0: And back then, that was a lot of money for a little block of wood.
1: Yes, it was. Uh huh.
0: Wow, I can't believe you still have some left. You must use it very sparingly.
1: I do. I I have a lot of wood that I use very sparingly. And then I've also gotten other pieces of briar since. I bought some briar veneer at a shop in Paris that had been there for at least five generations. I have in my studio, I have Probably all the material I would ever need for the rest of my life. I have a huge amount of extremely fine woods. And I have tortoise shell. I have shark skin, ostrich egg, amber, all kinds of horn and bone. You know, you name it, I have some. I have a lot. A lot of my pieces, if you look at them, I don't paint. Any color comes from the choice of materials.
0: Oh, you're right. I hadn't thought of that.
1: Or metal. I paint with the color of the materials. Like I have German silver in different alloys. I have brass in different alloys. I have green brass. I have red brass. I have yellow brass. I use different kinds of steels. I color them differently.
0: Well, I'm going to guess that while you work in miniature, your workshop is not miniature, that it's very large. Am I right?
1: I don't think of it as very large because I have friends that have very large workshops. Large to me is when you have your own multi-story building that's simply your workshop.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, that would be very large, but but you have an adequate space. I have
1: an adequate space. I have a total of about a thousand square feet, and it's divided up into a number of different areas for different purposes. I have a woodworking shop out in the garage outside, so I don't bring the dust in the house, which the truth is I use a few days a year. I'll cut a sliver off a piece of wood, bring it in and work on it for six months. But the key to a workshop is storage, and I count as part of the workshop uh, a couple hundred of that square feet, maybe as much as four, is storage for all this wood, for the metal, and it's all very well organized that I can usually find what I need.
0: Well, that makes sense because you're really looking for very high quality, somewhat unusual material, and you find it all over the world.
1: I do. And I mean, years ago, I I bought out a guy's laboratory who was a physicist who made all kinds of things for experimenting. And the best part was he labeled all his metal, which working in metal workers, we have a saying called mystery metal. That's the little scrap of metal that you have no idea what it is. One time, a a friend of mine who worked at Fairchild building satellites brought over a piece of what he thought was aluminum that he wanted me to saw out a little plate to make his radio for his car. And I put it against the saw, and I see all these little metal filings, and then it stopped cutting after about an eighth of an inch. And I turned off the saw, and I realized all those little metal pieces, those were the teeth of the saw blade. No. Well, it was a scrap of hardened titanium he pulled out of the trash can.
0: So it ruined your saw.
1: Ruined the saw. But I keep a little bit of everything on hand, at least try to. I make my miniatures from raw materials. If I need screws, I make screws usually. Because anything that's available isn't the size I want anyway. I've been known to make, well, you might have seen it on on one of my Instagram posts. I made some little nuts. Yes. And I realized they didn't have a wrench that they fit. So I had to make the little wrenches to tighten them. (laughs) That happens.
0: So one of the things I wanted to ask you about is the miniature guild school in Maine. You've taught there, right?
1: I have. This was my 28th year there. Wow. Which what that kind of tells you is I can kind of go do pretty much anything I want. The fact that I've gone back for 28 years means it's an outstanding program. It covers all mediums. So you can do needlepoint, pottery, silversmithing, machining, woodworking, textiles, whatever. And it covers from beginners to very, very advanced. I've had some students I've had for 20 years. So you pick and choose your classes and you pretty much you stay with those all week in that format. They bring in about 30 some instructors from all over the world, the best of the best, and then the students come from all over the world. Typically, we'll have people from maybe a dozen or 20 different countries.
0: So, how many people will be at the school all told?
1: Oh, probably all totals around 300, something like that.
0: Okay. Is it a remote location?
1: It is. It it's held at the Maine Maritime Academy in Castine, Maine. Castine. I jokingly refer to it as it's one of the few places in America that's an hour round trip to the nearest McDonald's. <laughs> it is at the, near the end of the Penobscot Peninsula, and it takes a while to get down there. You feel like, where am I being taken? And I always warn the the foreign students, because a lot of those flights get in very late into the small airport of Bangor, and then they go for about an hour and a half ride in the dark through, where am I going? You know, and they're worried. What have I signed up for? What, where are they taking me? But it's this wonderful little village that was the last place to be occupied in the continental United States by a foreign power uh, in the War of 1812. The British were there, I think, until 1814. Oh. It has been owned or run by, I think, the Spanish, the Dutch, the French, the English, and the Americans. have all owned it. Because if you controlled Castine, You controlled the Penobscot Bay, which in the 18th century meant you controlled the fur trade out of Canada.
0: So it's very strategically located.
1: Very strategically located. But there's next to nothing there. There's about 60 people winter there during the the winter, and the population blows up to a little over 1,000 during the summer season. It's, for the most part, a bunch of late 18th, early 19th century Greek revival houses. I think the town was founded in 16-something or other. And there's very few businesses. There's two bed and breakfasts, three real estate offices, two banks, one art gallery, one little general store, and a couple restaurants, and that's it. You know, no boardwalk, no fast food, no commercial, anything.
0: Well, I guess it's good because you can really focus on your classes, on your miniatures.
1: And we focus on that, except when we look out the window at the beautiful Penobscot Bay and Or Busy Eating Lobster.
0: Oh, well, that does sound like heaven, working on miniatures all day and then a view with lobsters.
1: Another wonderful thing about the the school is they have a scholarship program, and they have a program where people can apply, and each year, anywhere from three or four people are given a scholarship that covers your admission to the school, your classes, your room, your board, your food basically everything but transportation and any extras.
0: That's wonderful because it probably really helps propel forward the next generation of fine arts miniaturists.
1: It does. That's what the purpose of it is. It's been going strong for decades, and that's just a fabulous program. And so a number of scholarship winners have come on to go into the business and then later come back and teach at Castine, which is just, we're so happy about.
0: That tells you right there that it's working.
1: Yes, it is. I encourage people that are you know wanting to get into this apply.
0: Well, that's good to know and hopefully it'll be a little easier next year for everyone to get there. <laughs> and how early do you have to apply to get a spot?
1: Well, to, on the scholarship that uh, the deadline for that was August 1st because what they do, they want the scholarship students to have a full access to the class list. They, the classes are filled by lottery to the advanced registration students. That all takes place before the end of this year. So they need to get the catalog out, get it printed, have everybody read it, see what they want to take, make their decisions, sign up. But then there's always space in classes that even someone at the last minute can sign up. They, they might not have every choice available, but they can do it. The gentleman brought his wife to drop her off, and he looked at how much fun this all looked. And at the opening reception, he said, I just don't want to go home. I want to take classes. They had just flown in from California. And he literally dropped her off. And well, he asked, is there room in your class? And there was. And I said, yeah, we can do this. I have the materials. We're ready. So he went down to the Academy bookstore and bought a whole bunch of T-shirts and sweatshirts and clothes and was dressed in Maine Maritime Academy clothes all week, because that's all he had, and signed up there at the last second, like at the cocktail party before.
0: I love that. That's wonderful. It always reminds me, you know, when I first started going to miniature museums, people would say, well, what does your husband do? And I'd be like, well, he comes with me. And he always finds something really interesting there.
1: I curated a number of exhibits. Over the years, including a couple at the National Geographic Society, and and they got huge numbers of people attended. I think the one of them was like eighty six thousand people. They were very well covered in the newspaper, the Washington Post, and stuff. And so a lot of people read this, and you know, what are we doing on a Saturday? Well, let's take the family down, so on and so forth. And typically, it's the men that didn't want to come are the the hardest ones to get out. They're the ones at closing. You're like, come on. Yeah, got, we got to go. We're turning off the lights.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what it is, but but there's something there for sure. It's that elite of
1: making things. I, I have a very cute story that happened at the show in Arnhem, in Holland, years and years ago. A friend of mine, Ursula Derby Skullstiff, made little wire birdcages. They're gorgeous. And they have the most amazing wire shapes, and they're bent beautifully and stuff. They're expensive. I mean, they were hundreds of euros. 700 euros, something like that. Anyway, a man is clearly dragged into the show by his wife. And you can tell, you can spot these people so easily. Every now and then he comes in and he looks at her stuff. And he looks and he's like, after a couple stops by the table, he starts to talk to her. How can you charge that much money for this? It's, It's a bunch of wire soldered together. And she explains how it's... Well, how do you solder that together? Well, how you know he came back throughout the weekend numerous times asking technical questions, still totally miffed that these are that expensive. The very next year he comes up to her and he reaches in his pocket and he pulls out a bundle of bent up wires covered in solder and he holds it out to her and he said, Those are cheap at twice the price.
0: That's great. So he tried for himself. He thought he could make a quick buck, and discovered.
1: And no, he he realized how hard it was.
0: Well, I went into a gallery, and they had a bunch of miniature paintings, which you almost never see. And I bought quite a few. And the woman said, "Oh, well, you know, we get a lot of complaints at how much they were. They really weren't very much. It's just as hard or harder to do a miniature painting." And I'm like, "Oh, I know. <laughs> no. Like that is not news to me."
1: Yeah. Well, you know, you look at a miniature, there's the same number of pieces in it as the full-size thing. Let's say you go to one of these museums and look at a gallery of miniature rooms like in Kansas City. There's as many pieces in there as there is in the American Wing at the Metropolitan Museum.
0: Well, right.
1: I'm working on a project for the KSB collection right now and I made some wooden pulleys for it. And when I I did them, we had figured out how the originals were made. I looked. at there were hundreds of pieces in each pulley. Hundreds for a little round wooden pulley. And you know it's like, yeah, there's 230 pieces in that one. Whoops.
0: Who knew? <laughs> Nobody. Nobody knew except you, Bill. <laughs>
1: it's like, yeah, I didn't realize it was all segmented like that.
0: That's amazing. Well, Bill, I just can't tell you what a thrill it is to talk to you and hear about All the things you've done, you know, your lifelong learning, all the places you've been, the things you've done, the things you've accomplished. It's it's really inspirational.
1: Well, good. I I hope it inspires people. Just, you know, especially young people, you have a dream, go do it. You know, just make whatever you want to make and do it the best you can.
0: And there are many jobs outside of what the job counselor tells you, right?
1: (laughs) This is very true. And I'll leave you with one little kind of funny thing. I, I oftenly joke, I said, you, you should learn something every day, because the day you stop learning is the day you die. And and the ministers Pierre Moret, said, ah, yes, Bill, but make sure the day you die, you die late in the day, so you can learn something that morning.
0: Oh, I love that so much. That I think that's everyone's goal. I think one thing miniatures have in common, even though we're so very different in a lot of ways, is that so many of us have such a curiosity on how things work and trying new things because I think of all the different arts and crafts, this one has so much variety and there's so much learning needed to conquer all the different aspects of it.
1: There is, and you learn stuff, even the simplest things. I mean, last week I posted something on the Instagram about casters, because I made the patterns for a caster and someone said, Well, why are they swiveled? the way they are. Why are they curved? Why doesn't the little thing come down straight? And I didn't really think about it. I simply made them the way the originals were because they were curved. And she asked this question and I got to thinking, the caster won't turn if the wheel is directly under the center of the pivot. It won't rotate. It has to be at an angle. And you wouldn't know that unless you made one. Who's going to make a full size one? Well, nobody. So you make a miniature, it has to turn just like the real one, and you do this
0: and you see it, how it works. Absolutely. That's a great example. You know, one thing about nowadays is sometimes, you know, we use a lot of things on a daily basis that we have no idea how to recreate.
1: Absolutely. And in miniature, you sit there and so many times I've gone to make something and thought I knew what I was going to make, and thought I knew how. And then you start to really study the thing and go, oh my, this is pretty brilliant. And the miniatures bring up so many challenges because first you have to figure out how to make the thing you know, or what to make. Then you figure out how to make it. Then you have to fight with the materials, of what to make it out of. And then what techniques, like if you're making a little teeny piece, will you cut it out of a bigger piece and leave it on the end of the bigger piece so you have something to hold on to? So the the order of operations, the order of making it may be totally different than the original.
0: That's true. And for me, I keep thinking of how you have all these measurement tools. I think that was when I was a complete beginner. I think that was often the biggest mistake I'd make. When I wanted a sofa seven inches long, I'd cut the board or the foam board seven inches long, not thinking about the foam and the stuffing. The fabric turned out to be enormous. (laughs) Because I didn't take any of that into effect. I mean, luckily, you kind of only have to learn that once. But there's a lot of things like that that you learn.
1: Yeah. You start with the outside dimension and then subtract the thickness of all the materials.
0: You do the second time you make the bed, Bill.
1: <laughs> yeah. No, no. I, someone asked me the other day about making a lock. And they said, you know, the parts of the working lock, are they to scale? And I said, no. I said, the internal parts have to be super strong. I said, you have a little jewelry chest, and think of a a full-size human opening this 112-scale jewelry chest. I said, that's the equivalent of a gorilla trying to open like a little music box or something. The pressure we're putting on the internal parts is huge, so you have to make it so much stronger inside than the original was, yet not be any bigger.
0: You're so right, because it's not a little 112 person that's opening it.
1: Right. It's like this monster, you know? So the pressure we put on is horrible.
0: Yeah, I can see all the challenges. Bill, it's been a real pleasure. And thank you for sharing all your knowledge and your expertise and and just the amazing way your life has unfolded.
1: Well, you're quite welcome. Very well. Sorry about that phone ringing.
0: That's okay. That's just a sign of how important you are. I don't know. Well, thanks again, Bill. And I can't wait to share this with our listeners and have a great day.
1: Well, great to talk to you, and this will be a lot of fun to hear this. And You have a wonderful day.
0: You have a wonderful day, too. Okay. Bye. Bill Robertson, such an extraordinary miniaturist. I really enjoyed his stories, and I hope you did, too. It was an honor and a privilege to talk to him. My next episode comes out Tuesday, November 16th. Get ready for fun as I talk to Tanya of At Grandma Gets Real. We talk about the magic of Barbie, her influence, her increasing diversity, and so much more on the next Mad About Miniatures. In the meantime, remember, there are no rules in your dollhouse except for those you create for yourself. See you on the 16th. Bye.